0: Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM at cfrc.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Welcome to Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G. Happy Valentine's Day. You may not have heard much about mental health trends coming out of India these days, but in Bangalore, otherwise known as Bangalore, a population of over 10 million people, the school system is now discussing why it's critical to include emotional health, emotional literacy, as a subject in the school curriculum. They recently had a panel discussion that included Psychologists, psychiatrists, various school personnel. And of the results that were obtained through a recent survey showing how much children are dealing with, this is not news to us in the West by any means, but they're dealing with it too over in India. And widespread incidents of various mental and emotional disorders. And their school system is looking at cracking down on early diagnosis. And also implementing emotional literacy into the system to be sure that uh, young people are being educated on the various terms and uh, different things that uh, contribute to mental and emotional well-being. So that's encouraging for sure. Looking to Alberta, we have an article in the Alberta Farmer Express from reporter Jennifer Blair. New organization aims to destigmatize mental illness in the agricultural industry by getting people to talk more, ask more, and listen more. This uh, article focuses on Sean Stanford. He had an incident one week last winter where he was having severe chest pains and thought he was having a heart attack. Went to the hospital, they said, no, everything is fine. He went back again and again. Ultimately, he was having a panic attack. Sean says he kind of wished that it was something physical. It would have been maybe a little bit easier to deal with. But this is a story, Sean's story, is becoming all too familiar in Canada's agricultural community. The stress of farming is taking a heavy toll on today's farmers, who are increasingly expected to produce more with less time, money, and support. Sounds like a familiar story, not only in agriculture, but in the corporate world, even in nonprofit organizations. People being asked to do more and more in less time and with less resources. Where are we going and is it worth it? But the stress that uh, Sean and others experience can often go undiagnosed owing to an overburdened rural healthcare system and a shocking lack of mental health resources, specifically for farmers. But a new nonprofit organization hopes to change that. The Do More Agricultural Foundation, which was launched last month, is the first Canadian mental health organization that focuses on resources and support for farmers and their families. Farmers have needed a resource like this for a long time, says Stanford, who had always been a little anxious growing up. At the time, he chalked it up to stress the normal day-to-day pressure that everyone deals with. It wasn't until last winter that he realized just how much it was affecting his life and his farm. He says it was kind of a perfect storm of crap raining down on me. It seemed like no matter what I did, there weren't enough hours in the day. There wasn't enough money in the bank to keep everything going. Maybe if you're listening, have you been in a situation recently where you just feel like you're on the treadmill, there's not enough hours in the day, and no matter how much you add to your day, it's not enough to produce the income, the money that you need to alleviate the stresses in your life. It's a very common, modern problem. For Sean, all of his uh, farm chores were piling up. The bills were, too. His wife was pregnant with their second child, and his income was the only thing keeping them afloat. He was always behind at his off-farm job as a mechanic and always on call as a volunteer firefighter. That's a full plate. But then he injured himself at work, and things got worse from there. He couldn't physically do anything, but he still had everything that he needed to be done. Sean says, if I'm not working, if I'm ill or injured... Can't make money. We are all in trouble. For Stanford, that sobering realization only ramped up the pressure. Their success or failure as a family and as a farming operation was on his shoulders. Stanford says, I don't farm that many acres, so there isn't a lot of room for error. Who grows 650 acres of both dry land and irrigated crops. There's not a lot of extra cash if you need to adjust your farming plan and you're always stressed about what the right move for expansion might be. As farming becomes more intricate and competitive, farmers like Stanford are forced to choose between this piece of equipment or that piece of rental land, this form of procedure, what have you, and various marketing services. It all costs money that maybe isn't there. If these farmers choose to figure it out on their own, like Stanford did, the mental load becomes a weight that's difficult to bear. Farming is tough no matter what, says Stanford, but I'm starting from scratch and building up to something whose operation is separate from his father's and his brother's. This is the sort of stress that is literally killing farmers today. Stress for any, uh, anyone causes more psychological distress, and farming is considered to be One of the most stressful occupations, says Judy Malone, chief executive officer of the Psychologists Association of Alberta. Male farmers do have higher levels of stress, social isolation, psychological distress, and rates of suicide, according to Ms. Malone. A study conducted by the University of Guelph found 35% of farmers suffer from depression, 45% from high stress, and 58% from anxiety. In many cases, those illnesses remain undiagnosed. Rural Albertans in general underestimate how serious or widespread mental health problems really are, said Malone, whose research focuses on mental health in rural populations. Up to one-third of people who live in rural areas have moderate to high levels of psychological uh, distress, which can show up as anxiety, depression, substance abuse problems, and even suicidal behaviors. And the stiff upper lip farmers that uh, pride themselves on is making it harder for them to know when it's time to seek uh, help. Roughly 40% of farmers in the Guelph study said that they would not seek help because of the stigma associated with mental health problems. They see other farmers struggling and pushing through, so there becomes this belief that they should be able to push through as well, said Malone. Stanford says farmers are supposed to be strong, independent people. They're not supposed to need anybody or to rely on anybody. So when the time comes when you actually do need help, you don't even really know how to approach it. The Do More Agricultural Foundation is hoping to bridge the gap by destigmatizing mental illness in the agricultural industry and offering resources specifically designed for farmers. That's fantastic. I know a lot of uh, people in the workplace, whether you're in the corporate world or the nonprofit world, being asked to do more with less resources, and you look around, and you see your coworkers who are fighting through it, just like Sean says. You create this expectation for yourself that you don't want to be weak, you don't want to be the odd person out that can't handle the pressures of the environment, and so you too continue to fight on, only to come to a point where you can't do it anymore, and you you break down, and it's happening more and more in the workplace. And here from CBC News, we have a uh, an opinion, kind of a personal piece from Emily. Plunkett, discussing why hiring an employee with a mental illness can actually benefit employers. Plunkett says it's a gamble every time I decide to open up about my mental health. Will I hear the typical, this might not work out, that I always fear will lead to my dismissal? Or will my employer actually accept it and try to work with me to find solutions? She says I have a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder and depression, which can obviously pose some challenges in a working environment. I've held positions in customer service call centers and retail sales. Each of these positions come with their own sets of challenges requiring some level of accommodation, usually with scheduling around weekly doctor's appointments and a designated spot for prolonged panic attacks. But unless I am told by a doctor that I need medical leave, I don't need to be off work or without a job, especially since my doctors and I recognize that the act of working is therapeutic and empowering. I know many employers have reservations about hiring someone with a mental illness. They fear late starts, prolonged absences, erratic behavior, and so forth. And these fears are perceptible to employees, which explains why, according to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, 39% of Ontario workers would not tell their managers they were experiencing a mental health problem or crisis. But there is a case to be made that hiring people with mental illness could actually be to the benefit of the employer. For me at least, Emily says, my struggle uh, with depression means I can be extraordinarily creative in coming up with solutions to problems. I'm also compassionate with customers and coworkers alike who might be having bad days. I often use a broad understanding of my own struggle to empathize during tense situations. And I draw on a variety of skills learned through therapy to remain calm while working through problems because I know how challenging it can be for those with mental illness to find jobs, I'm that much more committed to my work when I am afforded an opportunity. In Canada, anywhere from 70 to 90% of people with severe mental illnesses find themselves unemployed, meaning that the minority who do find work probably consider themselves very fortunate. Indeed, these people may become the most loyal and hardworking employees an employer can welcome to their team. That said, Emily states, the above doesn't always apply if the issue of mental health is never really acknowledged or discussed in the workplace. Indeed, in my experience, not having an open conversation about mental illness can actually make things worse. And in some cases, just the thought of being let go under circumstances relating to my symptoms can lead to panic attacks and other undesirable effects. In contrast, managers who have offered help and understanding to effectively manage my symptoms saw major successes in my performance as an employee. Granted, I've been in situations where employers dismissed my concerns or made me feel scared when my secret became known. And while I did still stay with those jobs, it was a challenge. It's to everyone's benefit to discuss these issues openly and constructively and to resist the urge to shy away from challenges. Emily says those willing and able to work while living with mental illness certainly do not avoid these struggles. That's from Emily Plunkett, writing for CBC News. You are listening to talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, CFRC.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. The only way I can think to introduce our guest today is to take you back in time. In 2004 2005, I spent a year teaching English in Seoul, South Korea. And a special shout out, by the way, to our Canadian sons and daughters who are there presently competing in the Olympic Games. Congratulations on your existing success and wishing you continued luck, good luck. For the remainder of the games, the incident that I'm about to share that took place in Seoul, South Korea, is documented in a book I wrote called "Reconstructing Timothy," and it highlights my journey through a mental health episode. Anybody that attends shows up to the Mindwell Support Group that I facilitate every Thursday evening at eleven eleven Taylor Kid Boulevard. That is St. Paul the Apostle in Room D. Anybody that shows up gets a free copy of my book. But the incident that took place was, every day for lunch I would go to this same restaurant. And the restaurant, the place that I lived, my apartment, and the school that I taught at were in very close proximity to each other, minutes from each other. So I would go to lunch at this great little restaurant and then go teach for the afternoon and the evening. And these ladies, Korean ladies, were running this particular restaurant. And I mean, they would see me every day, so I got to know them somewhat over the, over the few months, last few months that I was there. And upon getting ready to leave, leave to come back to Canada, uh, the one day I was was eating lunch and and I finally said to them, you know, by the way, I'm actually going to be leaving uh, to go back to Canada next week. And you know, they were disappointed because it's kind of neat to get to know a foreign person, and and as best we could in our broken communication style, to you know, learn more about them and them about me. And this one lady, she had this this dignified way about her grace and composure and and, and just a, a wisdom about her she had a son that was approximately my age as well and he was in university in Seoul at the time and upon telling her that i would be leaving to go back to canada she looked upset you know she looked like she was sad and we hugged we shared this you know really warm embrace and we didn't say anything during the embrace but the feeling that was being communicated to each, through each other was that I know we've only known each other for a short time, but if I never see you again, know that the short time that we've had together has been very meaningful for me. And as we kind of withdrew from each other and we're still semi-embracing, she looked at me and she just said, I love you. And I said back, I love you too. And it was a very, very powerful, special moment with somebody who, in a way, was a stranger. But we had become friends over this short period of time. My next guest has a degree of dignity and grace and wisdom about her that is spilling over. I'm excited for you to hear her story. It is heart-wrenching at times, but it is beautiful and powerful and tangible. Our feature interview on Talk CFRC 101.9 FM, and on the web, cfrc.ca. I should quickly mention that today is part one of our interview. Part two will follow next week, so please come back to hear the culmination of this incredible tale. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome our guest. Her name is Cecilia Lowe. I'm really excited and deeply touched that uh, our listeners get to hear this story and hear directly from Cecilia. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm going to turn it right over to you. Let's go back in time a bit. What what can you tell us about your earlier years?
1: Well, I, was, um, I grew up in Gananoque. I, um, at an early age, 18, I went to Toronto, and I was determined that I would have a fabulous life in Toronto. I became involved in a lot of things and I grew up somewhat naive so I didn't really appreciate everything I encountered and as time went by and I began to age, I too wanted to um, you know have uh, have a partner, have a good life as I thought it was. So I I did marry. It turned out that um, the marriage only lasted five years. Uh the marriage was, after marriage, it became very abusive. There was a child from that marriage. And um, after the breakdown of the marriage, that child was
2: abducted.
0: How did you, I guess, come to the realization that child wasn't just gone for the weekend as opposed to, oh my gosh, this child's been taken and I have no idea what to do now?
1: Well, the child was to come home. Sunday evening and it had always been right on time 5.30 arrival always 5.30 came and went no child unable to contact anyone on the telephone so um, I don't know the fear the overwhelming I can't even describe it as each hour ticks by slowly overtakes you the person. Mm. The next day, I wa- was a Monday, but on the Tuesday, I was supposed to go to court. But on the Monday, I called the police. I did. That's all I knew to do. They, they weren't on alarm. They thought it was perfectly normal. Well, that's the impression I had, let's put it that way. And um, they refused to look for the child. I was beside myself with being distraught. It was myself that I, believe it or not, focused on because I knew if I lose it now, I will have no hope. So I um, uh, focused on, okay, where was that child on the weekend? And I started. Oh, like you see in the movies, you know, take your picture, take your little bit of information that you know, and start walking the street and asking people. And then I had to send home for a picture that had to be sent by, you know, Coach or whatever, quickly. Um, Anyways, because that was in 1983. So things are a lot different now. Anyways, I took my picture and my notepad and I started walking the street. Um, I knew the route I would take because I knew where the child had been on the weekend. And so I started asking everybody, have you seen this man? Have you seen this child? Have you seen this man? Have you seen this child? Everybody I met. Eventually, I did find someone who recognized them. They told me the apartment building they were in.
0: Now, you had said earlier... I'm just gonna stop you for one second. I know you had mentioned to me in a previous conversation as well, and I'd love for you to kind of expand on this point because it's so—it's it's almost beyond words to characterize how you work through this being in this predicament. But you made the statement, you know, do I, given with what's in front of me, do I, do I kill myself or do I continue to go on? How did, I, you, how did you, how did you work through that?
1: Well, it was this bookstore on college street called women's bookstore and prior to that i had read a book called as a man thinketh and for some reason i just something in me said i have to get that book i have to get it so i got it's a, a little book maybe 26 pages you know just maybe five by seven inside and i got that book it was was a dollar and 25 cents and I remember I can still see the cover and the 125 written on the cover and I got that book and I started like uh, reading it like really eat I say reading it but I was really eating it because I was consuming it page by page because it wasn't a lot to consume but it for me in that situation was powerful as a man or a woman thinks so are they well if I think I can't find them that means I won't find them
2: Mm.
1: I have to and it was all about thoughts producing what they called in the book fruit but you know it's a, a behavior that brings about a certain action, that brings us uh, about something else in your life. And so I had to, that was like, for lack of a better word, that was like a little Bible for me. It was no, no, it was a life preserver is what it was. It was a life preserver. So it kept me focused. I only had the capacity to focus on maybe four sentences because now I had to deal with um, police, attitudes, court, attitudes. How do you get through that? Uh, So I had to start with just what I knew and eventually the police had to help me because I, uh, I had to take the bus to Ottawa to the attorney general's office because that's where i felt the the control of the police came from okay. and so i met with a lawyer in ottawa and he listened to my story and he said that i had you know uh i was it was valid what i said to him and he wrote the police back and said that they must you know look For my child because at this time child find was just coming into existence. There were no laws, no laws at this time and so um, he sent a letter to the police force and so the police force still exercised a lot of control. They would not deal with me. As a force or as an office, they put what they called a liaison officer in charge, and the only way I could communicate with the police was through that officer.
2: Okay.
0: So after you contacted Ottawa and so forth, you began walking the streets in, or was that prior to?
1: That was prior to um, going to Ottawa.
0: So you're walking the streets. You're trying. You're you're showing pictures of the. Your child and, and the your, your ex at the time, and, and, and trying to see if and, and what what becomes of that.
1: Well, um, I found a the apartment building they had lived in. They had moved out the the weekend, but the superintendent was reluctant to give me access to the apartment, even though I asked for it. But they did eventually allow me in because the apartment was empty. And um, they walked through it with me and I did find like my child's I know it was silly but it was a plastic cup and plate but it meant a lot to me at that time and I found a cardboard box as well um, with a global uh, address on it which um, when I researched it it was kind of like a moving company so um, and before I left, I convinced the superintendent to open the mailbox to see if there was a phone bill or something there. And there was a phone bill, and I did open it. But there was nothing on that that would that I f- felt would help me. But the name on the box, the cardboard box, I contact. I found that company, and I contacted them, and they did tell me yes, they packaged some things up. But they would not tell me uh, anything else because I needed a search warrant for anything else. And the police weren't gonna do didn't wouldn't do that, even though I asked them to.
0: Hmm. So you I went
1: to the company, um, I presented myself and my story hoping they would would still do it for me, but they didn't. So that was a little bit of a clue. So you just keep going. It's like, you know. And then I went to the uh, main library in um, downtown Toronto um, and I um, did some research, which was on microfiche, you know, about abductions. I also, at that time, found out there was a, what they called a Hague Convention, and there was all sorts of laws that had been created if it had been ratified by a country. So I ordered that book, I ordered it, um, and it it became a great source of what was legal, what I could do, what I couldn't do, who, what, and where and um so i used that as a guideline i um created what i thought was a letterhead you know it it, it, we didn't have computers and things like we have now so i created a little letterhead and i sent it out to organizations that were beginning to look for missing children out even as far as oklahoma i remember i sent And every time I sent something, there was a cost because I had to include the court orders and the legal papers with everything I sent. So I had to be employed. So I did um, start working for a temp agency um, in order to finance what I was doing uh, to live. And um, so and then I did eventually, I think around after a year around a year hired a private detective who i had read in the paper did actually uh bring a child home from another country But the long and short of that that was another story because that was a nightmare because that private detective did not really help me he took my money and didn't help me okay Um. And then um, I did inquire of a couple of lawyers, but they were unable to help as well. I continued to work and continued to look, continued every avenue, every, every everything that I could ever think of. And time went on. Years passed, but you continued to work. You continued to search. And somehow every day, I don't know how, but I guess because in the looking, there was something about the process of searching, and we didn't have computers like we do today. This is literally physically looking in any way you can think of. And so somehow the process of searching, I think gave hope for the next day that was day by day and you kind of got stronger but not i can't explain it a bit complex but mm. anyways you continue and I've actually had a couple of breakthroughs um once in florida the abduct the person that did the abducting was stopped in florida and um i was contacted but by the time i got my information to them it had taken too long they could not hold them
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that happened a couple of times twice or three times and that was that was hopeful but frustrating
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and finally you reach a point where I did reach a point where I had literally done everything I could do. And you have to bear in mind, laws were different then than they are now. Very different. I had determined in my heart that I would not break a law in order to bring this child home. It was like a vow I made to myself. Mm -hmm. Because there was so much frustration in what I saw, the police and, and all of this stuff that I was also dealing with, mm-hmm. that I refused to break a law to bring the child home, because how could I teach a child to obey the law?
0: And what was it that the Missouri, this, this story ends up in Missouri at some point. What did the Missouri police say to you in that regard?
1: Well, what happened was eventually um, I did get a breakthrough because the person that abducted the child um, sent me some court papers. They want, even though I was already divorced, they wanted a divorce and the, the divorce didn't bother me. What they wanted, they wanted support from me for that child. Wow. Well, that's how I was too, wow. <laughs> then, no, but I approached a lawyer that I had uh, seen early in the process and she said, oh, this is wonderful. Even though my blood was boiling, she said, this is wonderful. But why was it wonderful? She said, because now that person has called you into a courtroom. Now, because you have been summoned, you have rights. Mm -hmm. Now, I had some rights, whereas prior to this, I did not have any rights. So um, I had, you know, found out that they were in Missouri at this time, but I had tried to get him home legally and... I couldn't the, I have spoken to four different lawyers because Missouri had not ratified the Child Custody Act mm. that ratification would allow Missouri to acknowledge my court orders. Um, and so what happened is in speaking to the police, the police told me, you know, we feel for you, ma'am. And if you come down here and take that child yourself. We won't look for you. And I said, I can't do that. And so when I went to see this lawyer and she took the names of the lawyers that I had spoken to and, um, she called them, talked to them and she chose one of one lawyer that she felt would be the best for my situation. Okay. So in the, um, in the process that followed was, I flew to Missouri, I was to go to court, um, I believe Monday morning. I hadn't met the lawyer yet, so I went to the lawyer's office, met the lawyer, went to court with her, um, and um, she had told me, what we have to do is... At this time, because, again, the laws were different, um, we have to do a writ of habeas corpus. Well, what's a writ of habeas corpus? It's seizing property from a marriage. Okay. But you have to go before a judge, and you have to prove to the judge why that property should be seized. And so she did do that, but before she did that, Uh, In the courthouse, she had gone, I guess, to speak to the lawyer, the other lawyer, and the lawyer gave her a letter. The letter was in my writing. I had written it, and whatever, what, what I had written was under duress through, you know, many physical beatings or threats or whatever, but this letter was now being used against me, and when I saw the letter, and I saw it was in my handwriting. It was such a shock to me that I got amnesia. I, al- I almost passed out, and I started to cry. I'm like, it's over. The lawyer said, no, it's not over. You've come too far. We're going in there.
0: So what did the letter say?
1: Um, the letter had said that, yes, I wasn't really a great parent, that, yes, this person, this abuser, was, um, you know, a, a great, a good person, that they should have this child, blah, blah, blah. But I had been through a lot, and the, and there had been many times that my life was at risk, and mm-hmm. I did what I had to, to live.
0: Sure, yeah.
1: So, I was told to write something I wrote it <laughs> when you know that you could die or write something that you feel is is really that you know detrimental, you don't have the foresight to see when it when and how it can be used against you at times, sure, and so anyways um what happened i honestly i I didn't I couldn't remember anything. It, the, seeing my handwriting and what I had written then just threw me into such shock, I guess. And so uh, the lawyer uh, wiped my, ear, my eyes said, Get in here. Um, took me into the courtroom. I had to sit across the table from the one who did the abducting. But that person was the first one called to the stand. And so, you know, his lawyer established his foundation and then my lawyer got up and began to question um this person and as the lawyer was questioning um him her law clerk came through the door with a purilator package and she ripped it open and she started asking very very specific questions and the judge said, what is, you know, to the lawyer, what is that? And she said, Your Honor, this is certified court documents from Toronto. And um, she asked a few more questions, and the the other lawyer, um, you know, opposed the questions, said, you know, you can't ask these questions, you can't this and the judge banged his gavel and said yes go ahead and so she continued asking these questions and then the judge asked to see the papers and the uh, judge he awarded me custody of that child but the lawyer said oh your honor you can't do that because Missouri has not ratified the act yet and if it does or when it does because it was in the process of ratifying the act it won't be retroactive. And the judge banged his gavel and said, I'm the judge here. I will make the decision of what I can do and what I can't do. And so, to what the judge did, and it's president setting, unheard of, he awarded me a U.S. court order for custody of that child. So I left there with a U.S. court order, and I had my Canadian court order already. And so, we were driven by police car to the airport and the police notified our change of plane in Chicago and that plane waited for us and we were home in Toronto at 7.30 that night.
0: Wow. Um, and how are you feeling? I mean, I know it's been years since this happened. You know, when you touch down in Toronto, how are you feeling?
1: Well, I... I guess I couldn't feel. Uh, I was here all of a sudden in my apartment with this child who's almost eight. I don't even know what that child likes to eat or drink. Mm. I don't know anything about this child now. Now, I haven't told you everything that went on prior to going into the courtroom. There were... I had to meet with a psychologist, and a child psychologist, they grilled me, then they had me, because they had seized the child, and put the child in a foster home, between the time administering of the writ of habeas corpus, and my going into the courtroom, they had interviewed me quite extensively, and I had read, 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 I'm a I read everything I could get my hands on about children who were abducted, about how to help them, about anything, about the law, about everything. I read, read, read. And the psychologist, after talking to me, said, who coached you? I said, nobody coached me. Don't you think it's the love a mother has for a child to research this so thoroughly that you know? And she said, you did an excellent job. And then after they interviewed me, they allowed me to see my child. They told me what to tell my child and they told me not to hug that child because all of this that was going on, the trauma of everything, it would be too much if I ran to that child and embraced that child and wanted to let out everything about the search.
0: In, what 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 was your response to that inwardly like what were you thinking
1: inwardly i'm like whatever you say whatever you say i want to do the best for that child the best and so i felt that these people who were educated specialized in that field were the best they were associated with the courthouse and everything so i did what they said And I followed their instructions even after we came home. Because before we left, the psychologists spoke to the abductor and they said, we want you to say goodbye, but this is what we want you to say. He refused to say what they asked him to say. So I had to take the child without a goodbye, which it was not. <clears throat> my, that was not my desire, because my desire is what is best for the child. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the abductor was not an abuser, maybe I would not have searched for them. I don't know. But it's the, it's the horror that abuse brings to a mind or an emotional, your emotional well-being. But I could not allow this. I could
0: not. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web at cfrc.ca. We will continue with part two of our interview with Cecilia Lowe next week, so please come back for that. And I want to share a poem now that uh, Cecilia passed on to me, a poem that she came across years ago that has provided her great comfort and shed some insight on her personal situation and also the lives of many other people that are walking around today. This is called The Mask by author Rosita Hall. If you want to check out Rosita's work, uh, you can go to rositahall.com. So here it is. This is called The Mask. I have a disguise and I wear it well. My true identity, it will not tell. The secret's safe, it's stuffed inside. The closer you get, the more I hide. You see me laugh and sing my song. I smile a lot, but something's wrong. The world demands so much of me. I cannot be what they want me to be. So I hide behind my mask. I know exactly how I want to be, but people, they're always judging me. So my talents and gifts, the genuine me, I cannot share so they can see. So my dreams lay dormant. My heart has gone to sleep, never to be awakened, for they're buried within me deep. I've stayed too long at the masquerade ball. I hardly recognize myself at all. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. Today's Music and the Mind spotlight is less about how drugs and alcohol can get in the way of our quest for the natural high, the good life, although they can, but more about how bitterness and resentment can do the same. The song, Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own uh, by U2 on their album, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb from 2004, uh, is a tribute that Bono wrote for his father, Bob, who died in 2001. Bono sang it for the first time at his father's funeral, and it reflects on their tense relationship until just before his death, when Bono claims that they became closer than ever before. In Bono's words, he says, my dad's whole thing was, don't dream to dream is to be disappointed. That was really what I think his advice was to me. He didn't speak it in those words, but that's what he meant. And of course, that's really a recipe for megalomania, isn't it? I mean, I was only ever interested in big ideas. And not so much dreaming, but putting dreams into action. Doing the things that you have in your head has become an important thing for me. The song was dedicated to him, and it's a portrait of him. My dad was a great singer, a tenor, a working-class Dublin guy who listened to the opera and conducted the stereo with my mother's knitting needles. He just loved opera. So in the song, I hit one of those big tenor notes that he would have loved so much. I think he would have loved it. I hope so. Uh, 2006, Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own, went on to win a Grammy for Song of the Year. And if there's somebody in your life, maybe there's an estranged relationship, somebody that's living or has deceased, there's some resentment, some bitterness and you feel that forgiveness might be the salve to ease the pain that you're carrying around, perhaps it's time to reflect on this. Here it is, you too, with Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca.
2: You think you got the stuff You're telling me and anyone You're hard enough You don't have to put up a fight You don't have to always be right Let me take some of the punches for you tonight
0: with sometimes you can't make it on your own. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. It's been a bit of a theme throughout today's show if you've picked up on it. Earlier, we looked at an article dealing with the farming industry and how there's very high rates of anxiety, depression, suicide. If you weren't a farmer yourself or didn't have friends or family that were in the industry, you would have no idea that this is even going on. But it is they're dealing with a lot of stresses trying to take care of their families dealing with a lot of factors that are out of their control often and there's a posturing kind of in the industry that you know you don't want to have to ask for help you want to be perceived as somebody this is kind of a general general human trait but specifically it's uh definitely pronounced in the farming industry as well this perspective that says you know I can handle everything I don't need to ask for help and as you keep piling on more stresses and not asking for help. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. So it's really uh, crucial to begin to take a step today. If you're feeling like you're drowning in in debt or in just the stress, uh, don't let this continue to evolve into a further dire situation. Reach out, call a friend, speak to your partner, your husband, your wife, and uh, begin that process of working on solutions to try to get some of these things resolved in the best way that is possible given your circumstances at this time. And if you're a post-secondary student dealing with something, whether it's big or small, it doesn't matter if you're just looking to get something off your chest or maybe you're in crisis. There's a great helpline that provides free, professional, confidential counseling support It's called Good to Talk. You can check out their stuff at goodtotalk.ca. But the number is 1-866-925-5454. That is 1-866-925-5454. If you're struggling today or have been struggling for some time now, and you're a post-secondary student specifically, please call this line and reach out. You know, there's a beautiful tapestry that is woven throughout life. And sometimes it's life circling back upon itself Kind of that hindsight's twenty twenty thing, where we 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 get the long view, we see the broad perspective, mm-hmm. and we're like, "Wow, it's amazing how these things unfold." But the year that I was in Korea, Seoul, South Korea, which is where the Olympics are right now, as many of you know, I was I had went to Korea and I was teaching English. But part of the reason I went to Korea was. I was going through a difficult time. I split up with my girlfriend at the time who has since gone on to become my wife, Mary. And it was a difficult time because I myself didn't know how to ask for help. And I was struggling with some things and I felt like going away and leaving leaving the country was the way to deal with things and just kind of branch out on my own outwardly. If you remember that poem, "The Mask." Outwardly, that's what it looked like to everybody else. I was just traveling on my own, but inwardly, I was I was struggling for sure. But I didn't know how to ask for help. And in um, the the article with the farming industry and so forth, not farmers not knowing how to ask for help. And the story about meeting that woman and sharing that warm embrace and just connecting at that kind of common humanity level, and just feeling this. Incredible feeling with this, basically a stranger, but somebody who I'd come to get to know a little bit over the, the last few months that I was in Seoul, and in her dignity and her grace, which reminds me of Cecilia, who is featured in our interview today, and part two will be next week. The dignity and the grace and the wisdom and just the, the openness that Cecilia shared with us today. Um, and then the song. Sometimes you can't make it on your own, which was released in two thousand four when I was in Seoul, dealing with themes of, you know, having a strange relationships in your life, or, you know, whether it's somebody that's been that's passed on or somebody that's still in your life. Maybe you haven't talked to them in a long time. Could be a parent, could be a brother or sister, could be a friend. It doesn't matter who it is, although it's important who it is. Um, if there's some resentment and bitterness there that needs to be made made whole again, made right, so that you can come to a place of peace as Bono and his dad did just before his father died in 2001. Um, It's just this beautiful cyclical tapestry that connects us all the time and, and folds back in on itself so that we can see the big picture and see, wow, it's just amazing how these things come together and are connected and so relevant to each other all the time. So if you are having a rough day, It is Valentine's Day. Um, Please reach out to somebody if you're struggling. And again, please join us next week for part two of our interview with Cecilia Lowe and Mother's Love, a journey that spans from Toronto to Ottawa to Florida to Missouri, back to Toronto, and ultimately to Kingston. An amazing journey, a mother's love, a son abducted, and the eventual outcome of how all that took place. Please come back and join us next week for segment number two with our feature interview with Cecilia Lowe. I hope this has been helpful and I hope you join us next week. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and cfrc.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at Timothy That's info at Timothy d g a u t h i e r.com Every Thursday from 7 to 8:30 I facilitate a free drop-in group called Mindwell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8:30 30 address 1111 Taylor Kid Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe.